welcome to the first episode of uh, the Smash Up Derby. I'm Sam Smucker, and my co-host here is Jonathan Kassam. We're going to take on, uh, in, in this podcast, issues of working class life and working class politics and, and mm. things that will be generally enjoyable, we think, for people, working class people. So the idea originally with this podcast was to make something funny and light and interesting, and we have totally thrown that out the window because our first episode is about general strikes. Didn't think it was going to be hilarious, right? We, we At first, we thought general strikes were going to be hilarious. And as we talked about it, we realized that it might not be. It might be incredibly interesting and informative, but maybe less hilarious than we had thought. Um, but our, So we have two great guests with us today. They are Kirsten Hammond, who is the chair of the Department of Political Science from the University of Central Florida. Hi. How are you doing, Hello. Sam? Jonathan? Morning. Hi. And uh, so thank you for joining us. So we also have with us today uh, Professor John Kelly, uh, who's a professor of industrial relations at the University of London Birkbeck, or is it Birkbeck University of London? Um, Birkbeck University of London. And and hi, everybody. So thank you so much, uh, both of you, for joining us and taking time out of your super busy schedule to do this. Well, so I discovered both of you through this, uh, through an article that you had authored for the Washington Post um, back in February with Alison Johnston about the women, women's march organizers calling for a general strike. Do you, do you want to talk about how that article came about? That article really came about because of the Women's March and then follow-up uh, posts and, and newspaper articles, especially the one my friends seen post in The Guardian, who linked the Women's March to general strikes and was this the first step to a general strike. And Allison, who unfortunately couldn't join us today, said, hey, look at this, guys. You know, how's about we do a monkey cage post with the Washington Post on this because it seems that what we thought would never happen actually is happening uh, our U.S. audience might be interested in general strikes, which, you know, in the U.S. it's not a huge topic. And so we thought that really was a unique opportunity to share some of the insights from our research uh, with a larger public and perhaps make it relevant to discussions about general strikes here in the U.S. And I think for those of us who, who um, you know, who participated in the Women's March, it probably felt like a general strike more than anything else that we've ever experienced, probably because we've never really experienced general strikes for one reason, for one, you know, one thing. But, <laughs> well, there weren't any. <laughs> At least there aren't but, any, right. Unless they're related to sports, of course. Unless they're related to sports. Those, <laughs> those are the sort of most, most similar sort of public events that we, we could come up with like that are like general strikes, right? It's after the Bulls win their third championship and the whole city of Chicago is shut down. Um, That's right. So uh, it's sort of understandable, but how would you, um, how do you think the women's strike or the women's march really is different from a general strike? Well, it's it's very different because the women's march was centered um, along the lines of of really women's various issues uh, relating to women's rights and and, uh, demands and so forth, whereas general strikes tend to be much more centered on class-based issues, uh, generally working class, but also middle-class concerns about things such as uh, pensions or health care or unemployment benefits and so forth. So it it was a very different um, agenda, and it wasn't a strike. 
it was a demonstration. It wasn't a strike. People didn't uh, willfully say nobody go to work today. Uh, the entire nation should be on strike for this particular issue. It really was a march, um, a demonstration without that labor-related aspect necessarily. So, John, for your research, how do you, you – and I should say this, that John and Kristen and and uh, do research together on general strikes in Western Europe, along with um, Allison Johnston, a professor at um, – uh, I believe it's University of Oregon. Is that right? Un or Oregon, it's State. Oregon State. Oregon State. Oregon State. So they do research on general strikes in Western Europe. So for your research, John, how do you define a general strike? What what qualifies for a general strike? Well, it's got to be a stoppage of work, obviously, is the first point. It's got to involve uh, workers from many different industries or sectors. Um, and normally across the whole country, it's directed against government either executive or the, the legislature. Um, usually it's about a very specific demand. It could be around pension reform, for example. Sometimes just to enforce or give voice to a grievance. But um, I think one of the points we'd make is that general strike, the term general strike is often used rather loosely. Sometimes people talk about dockers, for example, longshore workers calling a general strike, or they'll say, oh, there was a general strike in Berlin or Chicago, um, well, we would say that those aren't general strikes. A general strike is a national stoppage directed against the national government, and it involves large numbers of people, at least if it's successful. Uh, and it also involves oftentimes not just workers, because it's called by union confederations. The most successful general strikes oftentimes involve other groups, retired people, students, uh, etc., let me follow up on that and just uh, refine this perhaps a little bit. Um, this is the definition we used in our um, joint research. We're looking at national general strikes. There are, however, also regional general strikes, which means, for example, in Spain you have a specific region, or in the U.S. it could be a specific state. Mm -hmm. Everybody in Florida, let's say, goes on a strike. That would be then um, a more geographically confined general strike, but could also be considered a general strike. However, the work we've done really only looks at national general strikes across the entire country. And, of course, the United States has never never experienced a national general strike. Of course, it's, it's a huge country. Right. But, um, That's right. <laughs> but even, even local general strikes, uh, it, it's probably been 50 years since anything close to that has, has happened. So there's a whole generation of people that this is completely an unknown um, an unknown uh, animal, but that's not the case in, in Europe. So do you want to talk about what the history has been in Europe for the last, uh, since the 80s, which I know is what your, your research covers? Yeah, uh, we started, our, uh, we, we saw, the research goes back to 1980. We started it some years ago, though it's worth noting there were general strikes in Europe before that time in the late 60s and 1970s. There was a big world strike wave uh, around that time. And if you just very briefly want to go further back, right to the beginning of the 20th century, there was a wave of general strikes around Europe, particularly around voting rights. But since 1980, the strikes that have taken place across Europe have for the most part been defensive strikes. That is, they're called to protest against a government policy or a government proposal, pension reforms, cuts in welfare benefits, some labor law reforms, for example. There's a range of issues governments have targeted. 
under the general rubric of neoliberal policy, rolling back the state, rolling back public spending. So one of the key features, I think, of these general strikes is that they have been defensive strikes. They've been unions trying to resist a deterioration in the quality of people's working lives. They're spread pretty much throughout Europe, although they're heavily concentrated, as you know, in southern Europe, uh, France, Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal. They consume the lion's share of the general strikes. But again, I think one of the other interesting features of the work is that we did find either general strikes or credible strike threats in countries traditionally very, very peaceful, Austria and Luxembourg, for example. In Austria, you have to go back 50 years for a general strike, and that strike record generally is very, very low. It's a very peaceful country, but even they manage a general strike. Why the difference between North and South in Europe? Well, one of the things we've looked at in um in order to explain the differences between uh, Southern Europe and Northern Europe, Central Europe, it really has to do, when, when we look at the financial and economic uh, crisis, the latest austerity crisis, Southern Europe was clearly the hardest hit. And so therefore the government policies that were proposed or in most cases implemented to address the issues having uh, to do with the fiscal and economic crisis were much more draconian in Southern Europe than they were by and large in Central and Northern Europe. And so therefore, of course, there were a lot more issues that and cutbacks that affected the working population and those also, for example, uh, looking forward to retirement as pensions were cut and, and so forth. And so one of the issues clearly has to do with what the government does because, let's say, the government doesn't have a lot of severe setbacks or, or cutbacks of welfare programs, then we probably wouldn't expect a general strike when, however, there are deep cuts and people feel that their you know, livelihood is threatened by these cuts or, or at least significantly weakened. That is when we would expect more general strikes. And so part of the answer really, especially in the last 10 or so 12 years, <coughs> probably does have to do with the extent to which Southern Europe has been hit by the austerity crisis and therefore by the government policies in response to these crises. John, did you want to add anything to that? I think, I think, I think to add, I mean, what, what's, what those intense economic pressures have combined with is trade union movements, which aren't always um, very large in terms of membership. Trade union density, the proportion of workers in France who belong to a union is 7%. It's very, very low, even lower than the US. But in all those countries of Southern Europe, you have trade union movements that are divided on political lines. You have communist confederations, socialist confederations, sometimes Christian confederations, as in Italy. So you have traditions of, of militancy and political unionism embedded in the structure of the union movements of all those countries. And you also have a degree of competition between the confederations as well, in terms of who can best mobilize and challenge uh, the austerity policies Kirsten described. You know, going back to the United States, it does, there's no comparison, right? We really have, well, we, we sort of have one and a half uh, federations. Right? <laughs> we have we have the AFL-CIO, and then we have Change to Win, which is so, sort of functions as a federation. Um, yeah. So you don't have that that competition, and the lines between them are um, right. Not as clearly, quite as clearly drawn. Can you say more about like how the competition works? Is is it people are like? Hey, I, I, I like I'm a member of the Socialist Union, but the Communist Union is actually 
standing up better to the government. And actually, in, in, in Portugal, there is there is quite um, quite a lot, a lot of research which has documented the competition between the two confederations. So when the socialist and the communist confederation, as it happens in that country. So when a government reform is announced, let's say a pension reform, they want to raise the retiring age, raise the contributions, lower the entitlements that people receive, both confederations will debate and decide how, 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 how they best respond. Should they lobby ministers? Should they call a demonstration? What are the pros and cons of calling a general strike? And there are a number of cases uh, in Portugal where the Socialist Confederation was wanting to open talks, um, try and negotiate reforms with ministers. The Communist Confederation, seeing the Socialist move in that direction, said, OK, we're in competition for members in various parts of the country. We can now steal a march on the Socialists. If we call a general strike, that will show workers we are serious about fighting these reforms. The socialists just want to go and talk. We are the we are the the movement, if you like, of action that will mobilise and and actually do something. So there's an element of, uh, of that in a number of cases. I wouldn't I wouldn't exaggerate this because actually in quite a number of mm-hmm. strikes we looked at, uh, France, Italy, for example, the confederations have often been united, and indeed the most successful strikes have occurred precisely where the confederations have agreed jointly to launch a general strike. Yes, Spain, for example, is one of those countries where since the late 80s, at least, the socialist and communist confederations have developed a policy of, which they refer to as unity of action, where they, first of all, uh, you know, communicate and strategize with each other before they would go and strategize uh, with the affiliated parties, for example, although that might happen as well. But most of those general strikes have really been called a conjunction jointly by the major uh, socialist and communist confederation because they figured there's no point in splitting the working class. It is much more useful in working together as a class-based movement against, um, you know, whatever policies are meant to be implemented that are perceived as being potentially harmful to the interests of the working class. So again, you know, there may be some more implicit uh, competition going on, but the fact that that uh, the working class does have an alternative in terms of if they are not happy with the image or, or um, with the benefits or services that their preferred union provides, there are other alternatives for them to turn to. At the same time, again, as John mentioned, if you do have a united front, it's probably a lot more powerful as a message sent to the government than if the confederations act without the support of the other confederations and project the image of a split working class. I mean, our evidence shows very clearly, I think, that the old maxim, united we stand, divided we fall, um, is borne out in general strikes. If one confederation calls a general strike and the other refuses to support it, the odds of winning are a lot lower yeah. compared to the situation where both take, both take part. Now, in one sense, that's an obvious point, but it is an important lesson where confederations see the need for unity, but they are also, in, in, a, in a way, engaged in competition for members. So they've got rival logics pulling them in different directions. Right, but so having a, additional confederations in the United States would not necessarily be the uh, the answer of the success of the no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think going back to the point Kirsten made earlier, I I think it's essentially 
government policies directed at large segments of the population, particularly around pensions and welfare, which are critical in, in mo helping mobilize discontent. And remember, these are issues which, which unions don't ordinarily negotiate about with their employers. Um, right. So if unions want to act on, on pensions and welfare, which often com comprise quite a big chunk of members' living standards, including retired members, in a way, they have to turn their attention to government and the political arena. They can't negotiate these issues with employers. And that's, in a way, not a bad thing, because as in America, they found it very hard to negotiate with employers, particularly big multinational employers. They've been giving back wages. They've been making concessions. The political arena has actually allowed some unions the opportunity to show they are still important, they are still powerful, and they can still, from time to time, make a difference. And, and just to follow up on that as additional evidence, what we've also seen is that general strikes actually have increased in frequency across Western Europe as industrial or economic strikes against mm. employers have decreased. So there seems to be uh, you know, a difference in trends in terms of how, <clears throat> excuse me, how unions are able to confront the realities that workers face uh, versus employers versus um, you know, government directives and policies. And they have become more active in looking at the policy side rather than at the employer side where they have lost power. I mean, all of this is interesting because, you know, the, the reason why general strike became, became a question here really came off of the Trump election and the Women's March and, and, and some sense that this would be a way to bring down the government or, or to seriously weaken the, tr the, new, the new administration. But you're saying that that's really not at all the reasons why general strikes happen in Europe. No, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't, uh, well, there may well be activists inside the union movements, there certainly are in Britain, who would like a general strike to topple the government. But the the, the, the ostensible demands of virtually every general strike we've looked at were for governments to either to change their policy or if they weren't talking to unions, to start negotiating with the unions and change policy. They were very, very focused mobilizations. Um, however much people might have despised right-wing governments in France or Italy or wherever else, they were always targeted and disciplined, focused around a very specific set of demands. Pension reforms, for example, and again, our evidence suggests that the more specific the focus, pensions or welfare, and the larger the number of people affected, which of course is true of those two issues as well, the more likely the, the, the strikes are to succeed. If in contrast, the strike is a general protest against the whole of government's economic policy, and we've seen many, many of those strikes in Greece, they almost invariably fail. Um, governments might well be willing to, to negotiate this or that aspect of pension reform, this or that aspect of welfare reform, but abandon their entire economic policy? No. Mm -hmm. So the equivalent here would be an, an attempt by the Republicans to reform or to uh, reduce benefits for Social Security. Uh, that yes, or, or, right. or Medicaid or Medicare, something very specific that affected large numbers of people. Yes. Right. Right. But a general strike against against Trump, we, we, we hate the Trump administration. We want to make their life difficult. We want to bring them down. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's futile and that would be folly. 
And just to, to, to add to that, uh, what we've also found is that general strikes, whether they intend to or not, um, can have electoral consequences for a sitting government. And the closer to an election a general strike takes place, the higher is the electoral penalty for the government. So there may be an aspect to this where unions can use general strikes strategically to electorally weaken a sitting government. However, that is may or may not be the primary purpose. I mean, the primary purpose is, as John said, a very specific set of demands of policies, and general strikes have the capacity to highlight those policies that they think are going to be harmful for, uh, you know, their constituencies and, and people beyond union members, and therefore make the government uh, look as the culprit for proposing or implementing those reforms and voters perhaps who are less informed about these policies may then realize A, what the issues are and B, know who to blame for this. And I think that's the sort of indirect way in which governments can um, also be penalized other than perhaps having to negotiate or renegotiate some of the policies that they want to implement. But is that the primary uh, obvious goal that is publicly stated of general strikes to weaken or topple the government? No, we have not seen that anywhere. It might be an implicit uh, side benefit if you want, or um, but it's not direct. The strikes we looked at weren't, let's get you know the bastards out. It's really, let's try and change these policies. Right. The timing is critical. When it's not just the form of action that's important and the targets or the demands, it's when you call the action. The timing is often critical. This is true in in strikes against employers, it's equally true in strikes against governments. And so striking against the newly elected government that's got a mandate, at least under the electoral college system in the States, that's hardly been imposed more than a few weeks, that's had no chance to demonstrate what it can or cannot do, in a way, it doesn't make any sense. You've got a much better chance of doing damage to the government and, and winning some concessions if voters can see one, two, three years of government inactivity, incompetence, damaging policies, then they can see for themselves, from their own experience, why some protest is necessary. But two, three weeks in, like the women's strike, a month or so in, no, bad, bad, bad timing, I think. Uh, having been spent a lot of time in the U.S. labor movement, the logic there is, as we approach an election, we have to be, labor has to be even better behaved than normal. Right. No strike right at before the election, because that, you know, that will be unpopular generally. We've been very successful at winning elections in yes. the U.S. Yeah. using that strategy. Yeah. I mean, it's a horrible strategy, but it is completely the the, the gut reaction of labor here. I mean, I think I think our, our evidence suggests a slightly more complicated picture. You're, you're right that. Trade union movements in general, particularly with their social democratic allies, are, are inclined to, to behave very well and be very cautious, very quiet in the run-up to an election. But actually, there, there, there is evidence that um, general strikes called very close to an election directed against unpopular policies and unpopular governments will actually do more damage to the government. So there is, there is sometimes, I can see the logic of if you like staying quiet, keeping a heads down, mm -hmm. logic. But there is also a rival logic, which says actually, if a government's in trouble, if a government's struggling, if its reforms are unpopular, as it were, putting the boot in with general strikes can be can actually be quite helpful in in finally killing off or at least doing electoral damage to that government and strengthening 
the opposition. It, it, it's not a straightforward question of either we keep quiet or we have lots of ruckus and protest beforehand. I think that it's a complex strategic dilemma. You know, in any given situation, which is the best course to pursue? Just to follow up on, on some of what John said, you know, the, the situation in the U.S. is also very different in terms of blaming or the capacity to blame the government uh, before an election because the, the system in the U.S. Is, is, is quite different from many of the systems we look at in Western Europe, right? So the U.S. is a huge country, as you mentioned at the beginning. It's also a federal country, and you do have two houses of parliament that are both very active. Uh, you know, in Britain, you could say that the upper house, the House of Lords, really does not have much policy influence and you have a single uh, party government for, uh, most of the time and so forth uh, and same in many other countries so it's it's a lot easier to say what the election is all about because it's a general election mm. there are parliamentary systems the executive comes out of the legislature so you don't have separate elections for parliament and for the president and or prime minister and so it's very it's, it's very different in, in the sense that voters can much more easily identify who they like and who they don't like whereas in the u.s i think it's much more complicated because of the strengths of the federal system uh you know because of the senate elections and the house elections and the executive elections and they're all sort of tied up but they really are also separate and so saying you know have a general strike before an election again the question is you know who would the target be here right would the target be the presidency would the target be congress would the target be you know state governments who have a lot of leeway in terms of what they want to do with these specific policies uh, and so forth and how to implement and administer them. So it, I, I think it's much more complex in the United States in terms of having voters make these clear-cut decisions on who is actually to blame for specific policies and how they finally affect them compared to some of the uh, Western European countries that we've looked at. Well, one thing that strikes me, though, is that Congress's uh, approval ratings are always super, low. super low, right? They're 15 percent approval ratings, so they would be an obvious target for a, a general strike move, especially if they're trying to roll back Social Security or Medicare. Sure. Or something like that. Um, so that's really interesting. What the, the legal context in the United States also is prohibitive for a, a general strike yep. for workers leaving work because unionized workers can't go on strike. They have no strike clauses in their contracts almost always. In Europe, to what extent are, are non-unionized workers part of these movements? Well, in, in, in Southern Europe, actually, which is where the bulk of the general strikes have occurred, France, Greece, Italy, Portugal, and Spain, there are, there are, there are constitutional protections for the right to strike, which don't exist in other countries. So there, there is quite a, a strong foundation of, 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 of law which says individuals, union or non-union, have the right to withdraw their labor. Um, the situation gets slightly more complicated when you look at general strikes, which are often in, in lawyer terms called political strikes. They are actually unlawful in most countries. They're okay in Italy, but everywhere else they're unlawful. And so what you have is a curious situation where, where the courts uh, have sometimes heard cases about general strikes, um, appeals to outlaw them because they're not protected. And the courts oftentimes in Europe have, uh, have simply said, well, it, 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 the case is not clear or the argument's complicated or uh, it's not clear with a sensible thing to ban it or we're not sure how, 
it could be banned. Um, there's a variety of complex judgments. So in other words, the judiciary have, have been quite active in some of these Southern European countries. And in one sense, I think on occasion, acted quite pragmatically. Um, so they, they have not ruled out, in Greece, for example, general strikes, the political strike is not lawful. But we've had dozens and dozens of political strikes. Um, and, and governments, by and large, don't go to the courts to get them stopped because they see no point. So you have to look not only at the law itself and the constitution, you've also got to look at the judges. Where are the judges coming from? What kind of views are they taking? And, and do governments go to the courts and expect to win their cases in the courts? All these things play out in a very different way in Southern Europe compared to, say, the UK, where political strikes are unlawful, and probably also the US, where I think, again, they are unlawful. And what is it like in Germany? What are the laws in Germany? Has Germany experienced a general strike in the last 40 years? No, Germany has not, and political strikes are not lawful. Um, so all the strikes that happen in Germany are against employers, not against um, you know government policies as such, or against the government because that would be a political strike. Uh, can in Germany do workers do industry-wide strikes? Yes, absolutely. Employers? Yes, yes. All that you know, all that is completely lawful and. Uh, there are regional, industry-wide, and so forth strikes within industries, sometimes generally within industries, but across a variety of employers uh, and regions uh, to really strike for higher wages and better employment conditions and lower working time and so forth. And that happens with some regularity. No, that's right. And, and the, the UK is similar in a way. In other words, a, a political strike directed clearly against government is unlawful. Now, what that means, however, is that uh, in the British context, is that if a group of, let's say, railway workers shut down the trains and went out on a general strike, they wouldn't necessarily be committing a criminal offence. But what would happen is the employer could sue their union for lost business. In effect, they would bankrupt the unions. So that's one reason unions don't do general strikes in Britain. They, they'd, be, they'd be destroyed financially. And I think that's similar to the United States, where the Taft-Hartley laws would exactly. would uh, yeah. they would use those to just financially destroy the unions if they were to do what's called support strikes here. Right. Um, that's right. And I think I, I mean there are there are some ways around that. I know in um, in Germany, where as Kirsten said, political strikes are unlawful. Back in the two thousands, when the government was enacting what were called the Hartz reforms a series of damaging reforms to welfare, pensions, labor markets, the rights of temporary workers, etc. a whole raft of measures. Um, the unions organized a lot of protests. There were rallies, there were demonstrations, there were meetings, there were campaigns, there was lobbying, there were petitions. In Southern Europe, they'd have had general strikes. The Germans did everything but because they're unlawful. That's right. So you can have mass demonstrations and mass protests, and that is fine. You just cannot have a political general strike where you basically uh, withdraw the labor power um, against uh, to support the strike against government. You can, however, have demonstrations, and people can decide whether or not they want to, uh, to participate in those. Right. So it's, in some ways it's semantic, but in other ways it's really not. So how I think it. I was going to ask, how have the strikes changed over the 40 years or so that you've studied them, another, from the 80s till now? 
Have they changed? I, 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 I think they have, because I think what's what's happened since 2008 is that we've seen governments everywhere pursuing insane and dysfunctional economic policies. Um, I mean, loosely neoliberalism or austerity, whichever term you want to use, but cutting public employment, cutting public expenditure, cutting welfare, cutting pensions. And this has generated a lot of protest. But I think one of the big differences between post-2008 and pre-2008 is this. Pre-2008, unions would often protest about a very specific single measure, uh, a change in sickness benefits, a change in holiday times, a change in pension contributions. After 2008, particularly in Southern Europe, they've been protesting against well, pretty much everything. Hmm. Uh, you know, we're against government policy. So they've, they've called often quite explicitly anti-austerity general strikes, calling for an entire change in government policy. And that's been very difficult, of course, because pretty much all of the parties in Southern Europe, apart from the small left-wing parties, are all in favour of austerity. So even if you defeat the right-wing austerity conservatives and have an election... The socialists will come into office in Portugal, for example, or in Ireland or other countries, and they'll implement very similar policies. So the post-2008 strikes, as a consequence, have been very, very unsuccessful. As far as we can tell, the success rates are extremely low. I agree. And, and, and part it might be because of the broader agenda. I mean, you, it's yeah. hard to negotiate a turn in, in a specific policy direction rather than specific policies. It could also be argued that part of it is because especially the governments in Southern Europe, of course, have been under the gun uh, from international uh, organizations and so forth, such as the EU and the IMF, to implement uh, programs that would get them fiscally back on track uh, from their perspective. And so you could argue that one of the reasons the strikes have been perhaps less successful has also been the macroeconomic, the global macroeconomic environment and, and the power of international <laughs> actors that requested and can enforce some of those policies. And in, in your research, are, are you defining success as like getting the government to change its policy? We measured success in terms of the government making concessions, mm -hmm. uh, and we define them very broadly, perhaps rather crudely, into, into minor concessions. For example, they'll agree to an increase in pension entitlements, but they'll preserve the increase in retiring age and the higher contributions. So you get concessions on one aspect of the reform, but not on others. Very, very occasionally you might get major concessions in Finland, Spain, Luxembourg, for example, there were packages of reform measures by governments that were simply withdrawn in their entirety, uh, major concessions, but they're very rare. And do you, do you study, do you have a sense of what the impact of general strikes is sort of organizationally on the, on the unions? That, that, that's much harder to pin down because I think if you, if you look at the, uh, the evidence across the countries, we can't see any relationship between fluctuations in national union membership levels on the one hand and general strike rates on the other. So in, in Greece, for example, union membership has continued falling fairly steadily for many years in periods of high general strikes and periods of, of low general strikes. The same in other countries. There doesn't appear to be a, a big effect. Now, 
It may be there are very small localized effects. If you have a general strike in Belgium, for instance, maybe the most enthusiastic participants in a hospital here or a school there or a railway depot somewhere else, maybe those small pockets become uh, much stronger as a result. They, they recruit more members, for example, or more people start participating in the union. Because we know that if you look at national individual unions, individual strikes actually do make a difference to membership. The, the unions in Britain, which have more strikes, do actually increase their membership, other things equal. So strikes are actually a good mechanism of recruitment um, within particular sectors or workplaces. General strikes, however, don't seem to have that effect, so far as we can tell, which is kind of curious and uh, surprising. This whole issue, for instance, of trying to drive, drive down wages, um, in the end, it's not where the general strikes come from, though. The general strikes come from these more broader sort of government program issues. No, I was going to say the policy logic is I think you, you've got to figure out um, what is a potentially winnable issue. So striking against austerity, we want a complete change in government policy. Much though I would sympathize with a change in government policy, a general strike is not going to bring it about. General strikes are, are very good weapons for bringing about specific reforms and extracting very specific concessions. Timing is a crucial issue, you know, when to call it, um, although you don't always have control over that. And I think in a federal system, as Kirsten said, and the same is true of Germany to a degree, or Spain perhaps, figuring out, as always with collective action, who is the appropriate target? That is, who, on whom can we pin the blame? Who's responsible? Who are the parties that are antagonizing people? Who are the parties that might shift? So you could imagine in the American context, a general strike in a very specific state. I know there were a lot of labor protests some years ago in Wisconsin over uh, bargaining rights for public sector workers. Well, now that's, a, that's an issue that affects a relatively small number of people. So it's, it was always going to be a difficult one. But, but insofar as state governments have policies or measures which impact on, on um, state living conditions, minimum wages, etc., in the, the within the jurisdiction of the state, or other measures which affect large numbers of people. Um, in, the, in the U.S. context, state-wide rather than countrywide general strikes actually might prove more feasible. Right. So it's still very difficult. To go back to the to the Wisconsin example, your research would where where it was really you know a lot of the folks kind of. There was a big, there was kind of a debate, like, should we be organizing towards a general strike or should we organize towards a, a recall election to try to get the governor out? But it seems like your research might suggest that actually doing a general strike in the lead up to the recall election might have been effective, more effective than just trying to get people to vote for the same board yes. that they didn't vote for last time. It, it, might, it might well have been. And as you rightly say, they're not alternatives, of course. You can run one mechanism along with the other in order to, 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 so that each of them boosts the strength of the other. But the, the problem in Wisconsin in part is because the measure was about labor law reform, the, the proportion of workers in Wisconsin were unionized, even if you throw in their family members, retired members, and so on. You're looking at an issue which many people on the surface might think, oh, okay, so they're interfering with the bargaining rights of school teachers and whatever, I don't see how that affects me. You know, I, I work in Walmart or Starbucks or, or, or drive trucks. So you'd have to find a way of showing how that set of reforms actually is going to damage the interests of large numbers of people. Because otherwise, you've got potentially 
a purely sectional dispute. So, so the but, general strike in that case really should be about, for instance, cuts to uh, public schools or something like yeah. that. Uh, yeah, cut, cut which, which Bob was pushing, pushing through, right? All these other cuts that. No, that's well. right. But, but again, where, where's the broad agenda? You have strategic choice as an organizer about which issues to put in the foreground and which in the background. And even though the, the governor himself, his name escapes me now, was pushing, I think, bargaining reforms as his, his major piece of, uh, of reform, it's open to the, the organizers of, of disputes and collective action to say, no, no, actually, that's not the real center of this. The real center of, of his policy is about cuts in school budgets, et cetera, et cetera. So you right. need to reframe the issue to capture as many people as possible, to get people saying, whoa, hey, wait a minute, that affects me. I thought this was just bargaining rights. Now I see it's about something much bigger. So, and to follow up on that, you know, we talked about success before, and, and the way we had defined success in our research was really, uh, was the strike effective in gaining concessions from the government on these specific policies? But you could also think of success a different way, and, and the reasons why we didn't do it that way, but is how many people actually turned out to support the strike? Because obviously, you know, if, if, if a union of all unions, whatever, call for a general strike, and nobody shows up, well, you know what they call it, what they call a leader who, you know, has no uh, followers. It's a guy walking in a park, right? And, and so that would not be a good situation and would certainly not be successful and in fact could be damaging to the unions. And so you have to figure out, you know, other issues where you could elicit broad popular support because a broad number of people may or are affected by these policy changes, and would there be popularity for this issue? Now, public education is not something that is necessarily popular in all states, and even if there are cutbacks, uh, you know, in the U.S., there might be quite a few voters who would think that's a good thing because, you know, and you know the reasons for why some people think that public education is something that they shouldn't necessarily support, and there should be more school choice, and this and that, and the next thing. So again, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, um, I, it's risky, perhaps, and you need to be quite strategic and cautious about when you want to put yourself out there and organize a general strike, because if this is a flop, then the union movement can be really damaged for quite a while because they lose legitimacy and credibility and it, you know they're pushing a cause that is not popular and nobody follows militants always want the strike that's the thing but right. but you've got to have people as kirsten says who, who who are not afraid to say this is a terrible issue it's terrible what they're doing but if we strike now all we will signal to the public and the government is our weakness not our strength so actually it's better to as we keep the powder dry fight another time those are those are hard strategic choices, but sometimes they have to be made. But in the United States, you know, sort of the big the big question is, we do not have a confederation that is going to mm -hmm. be out front pushing this. And it really right. would have to come from other sectors. We'd have to shame labor into, into you know, the main part of labor anyway, into getting involved. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on that? And maybe Jonathan, you can throw in on that one too. Jonathan's been active in the labor movement for a very long time. So. <laughs> No, no thoughts. It's impossible. No, I mean, we had, we, there was a there was a motion passed at the trade union congress in Britain about two years ago, which didn't call for a general strike because that would have been unlawful. It would have been ruled out of order. 
but it called on the TUC to examine the practicalities of a general strike. In other words, take, go away and take a look at it. Think about it. Well, of course, they came back and said, no, it's not practical. Um, so we have the same problem here, is that you've got leaders in one or two unions who will be willing to push this out, the civil servants union, the rail workers union, but the bulk of the leadership of the union movements would never in a million years go anywhere down this road. And so the, the pressure would have to come initially from below um, and try and shift union policy. But as you know, that is a very long drawn out protracted process. Right, and you need to have unity again behind it. And, and again, you know, one of the, the um, differences between the U.S. and, and Western Europe, I think, are uh, really the, the sort of diversity uh, issues as well. A lot of the pressing issues that people are very upset about, uh, you know, cut across all sorts of, of demographic sectors. You know, Black Lives Matter, that's a really important issue. It may, however, not necessarily have the entire working class united behind it. You look at trade policies and uh, those kinds of issues, you know, protecting the environment and so forth. So I think it would be very difficult to find these issues um, that you could really unite a very diverse working class behind in the U.S., again, in part because of the size of the country and because of the demographics that are different from many Western European countries um, and the fact that people have many different identities and many different interests. And so, again, it would be very, in my mind, in addition to the violent history of general strikes in, in the U.S., um, you know, it would be very, very difficult, I agree with you, to organize something like that in the U.S. and, and not have be a disaster. I think it's interesting because in the U.S., when we have these uh, sort of larger um, mass actions or things that look like general strikes, for instance, and just in the last couple months, we've had the bodega owners in New York shut down for a day uh, as a sort of general strike. Uh, this was back in February, and it sort of came off of in this, this ferment where people were protesting the immigration policies. And there's the same sense among, I think it was in 2006, uh, maybe 2006. Is that right? When the, yeah. the Im, there was an immigrant, a sort of immigrant strike on May 1st, um, and it was all based out of basically the Mexican community, um, and it was widely advertised on Mexican radio stations, in, you know, Spanish language radio stations in the U.S. and so forth. But and but, that one, that one also kind of conformed to, in many ways, to this, uh, to this model, right? Of there was there was a particular bill. Uh, anti-immigrant bill and moving through Congress um, that they wanted to stop and and they were successful. Yeah, actually, that's a great that's a great point. So, well, well, I want to thank I want to thank both of you so much for uh, this conversation. was really interesting. I think we've uh, have have created a startlingly good first episode to the Smash Up Derby, and uh, and I want to really thank you both for taking your time and, and helping. Uh, helping us get this off to a great start. Thank yeah. you. It's been a pleasure. All right. right. Okay. And we'll we'll stay in Thanks. touch. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Okay. All right. Thank bye you. Bye. bye. Okay. Bye. Just got done talking with uh, Kirsten Hammond and and uh, uh, John so, Kelly. Wow, they, Go ahead. Those guys are super smart. They're like they must be on like pay grade seventy two or something um, for the uh, for the for the professor uh, rates. So, you know, I thought, uh, you know, I thought a couple of things. I thought one is particularly interesting thinking about the 2006, you know, day without an immigrant in this, in the, the context, because in a lot of ways it really fit their models. 
right, where you had the Republican Congress putting forward a very specific proposal, the Sensenbrenner bill, very punitive uh, immigration bill. And so they had there was a very specific demand. People went out and it was also, uh, you know, it, it was relatively close to an election. Right. It was the spring of 2006 and a sort of an unpopular regime. And, uh, you know, may, you know, under this model, you could say that that probably contributed to the Republicans stunning defeat in the 2006 midterm elections. I also thought it was sort of the their analysis of general strikes being, uh, you know, essentially like they're not a good way to get a government to totally change its course, but they are a good way to, to get a government out of office. Um was interesting in, in some of the thinking about some of the debates that happened in Wisconsin, uh, you know, in 2011 with Scott Walker, where I was sort of uh, some people were saying we should have a general strike and, and, uh, and people ended up focusing on a recall election. And, and perhaps their research suggests that a general strike during the recall election may have uh, may have made the more successful outcome from there. Yeah, no, that that's those are really good points. You know, the only time nationally I've ever heard anybody talk about general strike is in the last three months. And, and it really suggests, their research anyway, really suggests that that's not going to likely be very effective. Just as we've seen right. a couple attempts to have general strikes have just not even been effective. But, but even their research suggests that even if you could pull one off, it wouldn't be very effective. Right, right. And that maybe people should be thinking about a general strike in, in like the fall of 2018 instead. The other thing I think that's really important in their research is to understand the the issue on which the general strike should be organized yes. around, which is clearly not about Trump, but that it really has to be focused on. And, and in my mind, the most obvious thing is cuts to Social Security. So right. any attempt right. by the Republicans to cut Social Security, that's the thing you would want to do the general strike on. Even the ACA you know, Obamacare is not going to be a strong enough issue because people are are somewhat are fairly divided on it. It's not going right, to right. bring out the sort of universal um, support that you need. It's the best way to go after the whole agenda is by finding the specific issue that most uh, like encompasses that agenda, right? The, that whole agenda. From where you and I were talking about this, you know, in January and February, you know, it, it really we're in a whole different place. Once you get oh, yeah. that conversation, because we were trying to figure out, well, so how do you pull it off now? There seems to be all this energy. And um, I mean, maybe maybe the, the other thing I would say is, you know, just because it happened one one way in the past or that it has typically happened one way in the past doesn't mean that you can't try it differently in the future. Right. In other words, if there's right. a whole bunch of energy to do it, it might be worth doing. But it's super important to understand the structural constraints that you're dealing with. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so then, though, uh, let me put this to you. You know, we've we've talked about this in the past. How would you actually pull off a general strike, even if you're looking at 2018 in, sep in September or August? Um, you know, given the fact that in, in the United States you can't have labor unions walk out uh, right, who have a contract. Right. Um, well, you know, I, I mean, I think one of the things, uh, you know, I think it's actually something that that uh, that everyone on the left in the U.S. like doesn't, uh, you know, has kind of abandoned. But but actually, uh, you know, agitating for things is good. Right. I mean, I think like the more we bring up and, and talk about and, and actually and also not just agitating, but also, you know, analysis like this of, of 
uh, sort of, you know, people within people who want to see a general strike and are within the union should be sort of agitating on this idea, particularly that, hey, this, if our goal is to get the Republicans out in 2018, this this actually might be a useful tool as opposed to sort of the default uh, um, uh, tendency to just be play nice in the months leading up to an election. Right. I think that's, yeah, that's a really good point because what the general strike does is it gives the left in the unions an agenda. And we can argue that that this tactic is not going to under, in fact, the, the research shows that this tactic, in fact, improves the chances of electoral victory. Right. Uh, right. It mobilizes people. And at the same time, it doesn't um, it doesn't undermine the electoral you know, strategy. Well. Right, right. But I think it's sort of again some of that that like agitation and 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 thinking about how do you how do we move from a day without an immigrant or a day without a Yemeni shop bodega shopkeeper in New York um, to something that is that is more class based and encompasses also you know students fighting for education and and uh, and workers. Um, so the one question I feel like we haven't answered, Jonathan, and I want to just can close with this is. You know, what is funny about a general strike? <laughs> so maybe we leave that. That's the cliffhanger, maybe. That's the cliffhanger. We want to got... hear from you out there, our listeners, about what you <laughs> think is right. funny about a general strike or really anything else you think about a general strike. Because uh, so... we've utterly... Fi- We've already <laughs> failed to answer that question. We have. We have. Hopefully, hopefully someone can help us make this comedy podcast more funny in the future. That's right. So, because it turns out we know a lot about labor and not very much about making jokes. We, so, we, we tried to outsource our comedy to China, but it, it didn't work. We, you know, <laughs> the, the damn Chinese comedy workers went on strike. Funnier if it had been funny. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, so yeah. oh, you want to wrap we, this up? Uh, let's wrap this up. So uh, this is has been the uh, first uh, episode of the Smash Up Derby podcast. And uh, you listeners, we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the general strike or, uh, or what's funny about it or what's interesting or how we pull one off or whether we should. Um, so uh, hit us up on Twitter at Smash Up Podcast or go to our website, smashuppodcast.com and click on ask or comment.